0: Good evening. It is so good to be with you this evening to speak on your summer series. I've heard many good things about the work that is done in this congregation, not only in this community, but throughout the world. And so certainly I appreciate all the truth that you are responsible for spreading and uh, your love for the gospel of Jesus. This evening we have a very sobering topic. The topic is the courage to die. And I think for many of us, we probably have never really considered this topic seriously. Because let's face it, if you are like me, you've probably never been faced with the decision of confessing the name of Jesus and losing your life, or renouncing Him and keeping it. For most of us, it simply is not a reality that we would ever die for our faith. And so maybe it would be important for us to begin not with asking ourselves, do we have the courage to die for our Lord? But do we have the courage to live for Him? You see, there are a couple of very sobering things about Christianity in the modern world. At least Christianity in the broad sense of the word. First of all is the fact that many people in our world wear the name of Christ. They claim to be Christians, but Jesus makes absolutely no difference in how they live. Some 75% of the people in this country claim to be Christians, about 78 million people. And yet several studies have shown over and over again that only about 40% of those people attend worship services regularly. There have been other studies that have followed up that have shown that those figures are actually inaccurate and really the figure is closer to about 25%. And so if people can claim to be Christians, can claim to wear the name of Christ and yet not attend the worship services of a church anywhere, is that the religion Jesus died to establish? You see, Jesus has to make a difference in how we live. But then secondly, think about the way the outside world views Christianity. In so many places, Christianity has become more about compromise than anything else. There are so many churches who take their doctrines and they say, you know what, this is important, but it's not that important. In fact, if we are faced with a different culture, we can alter what we teach. We can alter the way we teach it. We really don't have to follow exactly what the Bible says. And so Christianity has become, in our world, so much about compromise with contemporary culture, that very few people even see the point. In fact, if we think about the religion that is best known in our world for the courage to die, it's not Christianity. It's what? Islam. How have we gotten to that point? How have Christians become so uncommitted to our Lord that we can allow another religion to appear more pious Than we are. If you'll turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 7, we're going to look at a story this evening that is a challenging one to many of us. Not only in what happens in the story, because I think we probably all know that the death of Stephen, but in how exactly it is that his death comes about. And as we think about Acts chapter 7, I want us to think about the lives of so many of those faithful brethren in the New Testament. And not only how they were willing to die for their faith, but how they were willing to live for it. Listen to the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, beginning in verse 7, as we prepare our minds to think about Acts chapter 7. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul is responsible for a passage that is challenging to me. Because I can say that not one day of my life as a Christian can ever be described as Paul describes every day of his life in this passage. Let's look at that together. Second Corinthians chapter 4 in beginning in verse 7. I'm trying to move the slide along. Next slide please. Can you help me up there? Second Corinthians chapter 4 beginning in verse 7. Oh, I got it. It's a little bit of a delay. Thanks. But we have this treasure, the Bible says, in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. Notice Paul wasn't working for himself. He wasn't working to carve out his own reputation in the church or to make money for himself. But for God, look at verse 8, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, "...but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body." In verses 8 through 10, there are nine present participles. In other words, what Paul is saying is this is not something that happens to us every now and then. Our lives are not in jeopardy just every few months. This is something that we constantly deal with, we constantly face, we're constantly being afflicted, we're constantly being perplexed, we're constantly being persecuted because of the name we wear. Some of you may be able to make the same claim for yourself. I cannot. Look at verse 11. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. Do you think about the death of Jesus often? Does the cross really make a significant difference in how you live your life? You see, I think many of us, certainly I can say this about myself often, go for hours, perhaps even days, without really thinking about the sacrifice of Jesus. Some of us may think about it only once a week when we partake of the Lord's Supper, which is an excellent time to remember it, but I'm wondering... If it's frequent enough, you see, it's very difficult to think about the death of Jesus all the time and live a life of rebellion against God. And we look at Stephen, the first man on record to die for the Christian faith. We see a man who knew why he lived and that's why he had the courage to die Let's look at Acts chapter 7, beginning in verse 51. I want us to notice the contrast here before we read the text between the Jews on the one hand and Stephen on the other. I think the attitude that we see in the Jews might represent a lot of the attitudes we find in the modern Christian world. Christian, of course, in the broad sense of the term. But notice Stephen speaks the truth to these people. Now, he does so in a way that many of us might consider harsh. Many of us might say, well, uh, we would never speak the way Stephen spoke, but it was true what he said. And the Jews reacted how? By saying, you know, Stephen, you're right. We need to repent. We need to humble our hearts before God. No, they gnashed their teeth. Stephen looks up to heaven as they are attempting to murder him. They cried out, covered their ears, and rushed upon him, did the Jews. Stephen prays to Jesus. The only such example in the New Testament of praying to Jesus. But the Jews don't pray to God in turn. In fact, the Jews begin to pick up stones and stone Stephen. And Stephen finally ends his life asking for forgiveness. Not for himself, but for those who are killing him. And the Jews respond by ending his life. You see, what we see even among religious people, and the Jews certainly were that, we have a lot of variation in practice and in lifestyle. I don't know that I've ever been into a town like Montgomery, Alabama before, where there's so, there is so much diversity in terms of the religious landscape. I don't know, I might have passed somewhere around three dozen churches just as far as I've gotten uh, at this point. Uh, I've never seen anything like this before. There's a church literally on every corner, sometimes two or three facing each other. There's a lot of variety, isn't there, in this town. The question is, who really molds their lives to the image of Jesus? Let's look at Acts chapter 7, beginning in verse 51 at the words of Stephen against these religious leaders, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did not your fathers persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered." You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Notice the message that Stephen preaches here is harsh. In fact, there are nine second person forms, either verb forms or pronouns that Stephen uses in verses 51 through 53. It is you, it is you, it is you. We're not told to preach that way. When I was taught to preach, I was taught to say we, even if you really don't mean we, because you don't want anybody to think you're singling them out. But Stephen definitely singled out the Jews, didn't he? He said, you are the ones. It's your history. It's in your nature to kill prophets. Which of the prophets lived that you didn't try to kill, Stephen says. That's a challenging statement, isn't it? But Stephen was not afraid to speak the truth. And if we are going to have the courage to die for Jesus, we must have the courage to speak what God has spoken. To speak the truth. If we look at this passage, we may see someone who appears harsh, someone who appears judgmental, but think about just a few verses down in verse 60. This same man is praying for these people. You see, just because we speak the truth... And just because the truth may seem harsh to some people doesn't mean we're not motivated by love and a concern for their souls. You know, Stephen was just imitating the message of Jesus. Remember in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 37, as Jesus looks across the city of Jerusalem and He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem... You who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. He said, I'd love to gather you under my wing like a, a, a hen gathers its chicks, but you didn't want that. You see, Jesus says much the same thing that Stephen says here, doesn't he? He recognized the history of these people. But then secondly, notice Stephen says, you killed the righteous one. One of the most unpopular things you can say in the religious world today is that the Jews killed Jesus. I don't know if you realize that or not. I don't know if there's a synagogue around here, probably not very many of them. But I went to a Jewish school, and that's something that you did not say to those people. In fact, most people today who are Christians will say, well, the the New Testament really doesn't teach that the Jews killed Jesus. The New Testament teaches it was the Romans who killed them after all, right? That's what the New Testament teaches? Well, it does teach both. Remember in Acts chapter 2 and verse 23... When Peter is preaching the very first gospel sermon to convict people's hearts to turn to the Lord, the Bible says this man, talking about Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you, who's the you? Come on. It's the Jews, remember, in Acts chapter 2. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Now, in Acts chapter 2, what was the response of the Jews? They were pricked in their hearts. What happened? What shall we... Let me hear it. Do. What shall we do? Peter says, you are responsible for the death of the Messiah. And they said, what can we do about it? Stephen tells them the same thing and they kill him. What this teaches us is that the truth does not always have the same effect whenever it is preached. People respond differently to the gospel depending on who they are and where they are. But the third thing Stephen tells them that really gets them upset you don't even know the law. Here you are supposed to be God's people. You claim that He gave you the law, and yet you don't even live by it. You see, there are many people, even today, who call themselves religious and yet really don't live by the same rules that they themselves profess. But we have, if we think of modern application, a lot of truth that we could tell in our modern world, don't we? A lot of ideas in our religious world that are certainly biblical but are misrepresented. What about male leadership in the church? The Bible says that a man is to have authority in the church. And I may not understand that all the time, but the Bible says it. What about homosexuality? That's a subject very few people want to touch, especially from the pulpit. A lot of people, when they do preach about it, say, well, these people ought to be loved, and they should. But the Bible also teaches that that kind of lifestyle, unrepentant, actively engaged in that lifestyle, it's not going to get you to heaven. What about commitment? This is a big deal for many of us. Matthew 6 and verse 33, I'll start it, you finish it. Seek ye third. No. Wait. Seek ye second, no. What? Seek ye first, the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Luke 14 and verse 26 uh, verse 26 says, "If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple." Jesus expected commitment. And yet in many places in the Lord's church, I see young families, parents making the decision to take their children out of worship on Sunday morning to take them to a soccer tournament or take them to baseball practice on a Wednesday night because after all, it's just one worship service. It's just one Bible class. It's not that big of a deal. How do you respond to that? well, it's just one soccer tournament. It's just one baseball practice, right? See, I think a lot of people in our world could use a lesson on what Christian commitment is all about. And if they don't learn it from Christians, where are they going to learn it? If we want to be the kind of people who have the courage to die, we must have the courage to live completely committed to our Lord, He died for us. How would He expect anything less? Secondly, notice not only does Stephen display the courage to speak the truth, but he displays the courage to live righteously. Look back at the book of Acts chapter 7, verses 55 and 56. The Bible says here, And Stephen said, Behold, I see the heavens opened. And the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears. Well, it's back to verse 55. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And then verse 56. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, Stephen was a man who recognized he had a reason to live. He saw the Lord. Now, of course, these kinds of visions may not occur today as they did in the New Testament time, but it certainly still stands true, doesn't it, that we have an audience in heaven? That every decision we make, every thought that enters into our minds, there is someone besides ourselves who knows what those thoughts and actions are. Remember in Psalm 113, The Bible is talking about God and His knowledge of humankind. And it says this, Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? In Matthew chapter 6 and verse 4, Jesus says, And your Father, talking specifically about your giving of your money, Your Father who sees in secret will reward you. If I do something that no one else in the world knows about, God still knows about it, doesn't He? In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, you remember there the Bible talks about this great cloud of witnesses that we have surrounding us. And it may be, as we have commonly thought, that these are people who have already gone on to be with the Lord and they're standing, looking out of the heavens, cheering us on, encouraging us to live faithful lives. Or a different way of looking at the metaphor would be we have these people's lives already recorded for us in Old Testament Scripture. We can see how they live, we can see how they suffered, and we can draw encouragement from that in that fashion. However, the metaphor is to be applied, it's a powerful one. Christians have an audience. We can rest assured that there are people who have lived faithful lives and gone on to their reward. It can be done. And the Lord is, of course, cheering for us along the way. But then secondly, this passage teaches we have a destination. I think it's interesting that these Jews are rushing against him. Some of them, we can imagine, are already picking up stones, seeking to end his life. And Stephen is not backing himself away, trying to find a weapon to defend himself, trying to find somewhere to go to escape. He looks up. The heavens. It's because he's not concerned with the physical. He's not concerned with this earthly life. In Colossians 3, verses 1 and 2, the Bible tells us, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things that are where? Above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things again, where? Above, not on things that are on this earth. We understand that as Christians, we are not supposed to pay attention to the things going on around us. That you know what? It really doesn't matter how expensive my house is. It doesn't matter what my score in golf is. It doesn't matter how expensive of a car I drive. You know why those things don't matter? Because they're physical. We can't take any of them with us. Yet I think myself... And perhaps some of you as well get so caught up in things that really do not matter in this world. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things of this earth. In 1 Peter chapter 2, the Bible says in verse 21 to Christians, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example for you, so that you might follow in His steps. You know, there's something about going to a place you've never been. If I go to a place I've never been, I want to follow someone who knows the way. Don't you? In John chapter 14, Jesus says, I am the what? way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus understood that there was only one way to the Lord above. And if we are seeking to be where He is, we must go where He went. And if that involves suffering, if that involves enduring torment, if that involves dying for our faith, then so be it because we're so committed to our Lord that we'll do anything to remain faithful to Him. But third, notice that Stephen has the courage To forgive. Look at Acts chapter 7 and verse 60. The Bible says, As he's being pelted with stones and falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And let's just stop right there for a moment. It is almost human nature. I don't really know from a psychological point of view whether it's human nature or not, but it's certainly human behavior to defend yourself, isn't it? When somebody says something about me that is not true, with indignation I respond. I set the record straight. Do you feel that way? I know I certainly do. Somebody sends you an email. Well, we heard that you preached a sermon and you taught this. I never taught such thing pounding on my... No. Is that the way Christians are to respond? You see, it's interesting. There's only one vindicator as far as human behavior is concerned, and it ain't me. It's the Lord. And when we see someone who is about to die, who is being killed by people who have hatred in their eyes, who have anger in every throw of every stone, he's looking into the heavens praying for their forgiveness. We, of course, know someone else who did the same thing, don't we? In Luke chapter 23 and verse 34, hanging on the cross, as Jesus is literally suffocating to death, he says, Father, what? Forgive them. Come on. For they know not what they do. I don't know if you find that verse challenging, but I certainly do. Here is a man who is giving his life, who did not deserve to die, and yet is concerned with the people who are killing him. You think if we had more of that attitude in the church, we would have fewer problems? You think if we had more of that attitude in our world, we would have fewer conflicts between nations? You see, forgiveness is so much a part of who we are to be. But then there are people, even in Christianity, who want to make excuses for holding grudges. We want to keep score. Remember what Peter says in Matthew chapter 18 and verse 21. Lord, if my brother sins against me in a day, how many times do I have to forgive him? Do I have to forgive him seven times? Remember Jesus says, no, not seven, but 70 times seven. And of course, there's some symbolism to that number, which we won't talk about. But Jesus basically says, listen, don't keep score. If somebody offends you, you forgive them. Don't worry about how many times they've done it before. You know what we see in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 32 applies to the church today just as it did in the first century, doesn't it? The Bible says this, Be kind to one another, tender hearted, tender hearted, forgiving one another just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. I don't know where this idea came from, but it's hard to find in the New Testament. That I only have to forgive someone when they ask for forgiveness. You ever heard that before? Maybe you've said that before. That's not what the Bible teaches. In fact, I don't imagine there were very many of those Jews who were pelting Stephen with stones and saying, "Uh, could you, by the way, forgive us for all this? I'm really sorry. I know we're killing you, but uh, you think that happened? No, probably not. I don't imagine many of those Roman soldiers were looking at the cross of Jesus and saying, I hope you forgive us for all this. You see, nowhere in the Bible can I find that I'm required to forgive only when I'm asked. Forgiveness is something that belongs to someone who has courage. Courage to live. Courage to die. Third, or fourthly rather, we must have, as Stephen had, the courage to Die. The last words of Acts chapter 7 are this, and Stephen, the martyr, breathed his last. Sometimes we perhaps think that people were dying all the time in the first century world for their faith, that Christians were just being executed ever. You couldn't walk through the streets without stepping in a bloody Christian. I I think sometimes we have dramatized the situation. There are only really three martyrs that are specifically mentioned, although we know there were others who did die for their faith in the first century world. But three are mentioned. Stephen is the first. James, the son of Zebedee, is the next one. And then there's a, a man by the name of Antipas, who we know nothing else about. And we know he's from the city of Pergamum. And he must have been a faithful follower of Jesus. But then you have this in Revelation chapter 17 and verse 6. The Bible says, And I saw the woman, drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled greatly. You see, this passage doesn't mention anyone specific, but it certainly suggests that a lot of blood had been shed by a lot of people who were living for the Lord. You see, for us today, the courage to die is not so much an action as it is an attitude. Because most of us will never be faced with the decision of whether we are ready and willing to die for our faith. But all of us ought to live like it. Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 12, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Now, persecution doesn't always entail death, does it? It could mean simply losing friends. It could mean losing influence. It could mean losing a job. Well, I have this job and it doesn't allow me to attend worship services regularly. Well, is there anything else you can do? You see, I think if we lived prepared to die, It would affect a lot of the decisions that we make in everyday life. Paul says to Timothy again in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 11, Yes, you will suffer persecution, but also it is a trustworthy statement. For if we died with him, we will also live with him. It is a promise that we have. If we are committed enough that we are willing to die, we will have a reward awaiting us. When this life is over, what can we learn from the death of Stephen? Well, we can learn most people wouldn't live like that. Christians are unique. In Second Corinthians 6 and verse 17, the Bible says, Come out from among them and be ye separate, quoting Isaiah 52. One of the problems that seems to me a lot of Christians have is we behave no differently than so many other people in the world. There really is no difference between the decisions we make, the language we use, how we spend our money, than anyone else. Is that the way it's really supposed to be? You think about that. When I was in fourth grade, I wrote about this about a year ago, but I was in fourth grade. I had a friend named Austin. And Austin asked me where I went to church, and I I told him, so-and-so, Church of Christ. And he said, the Churches of Christ are weird fourth grade. I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, you, and he named some of the things that we didn't do, well, you don't have instrumental music. Only he said something like piano or organ. And you don't do this, and you don't. And I was kind of ashamed, because I was so different from him and from all the other kids in my class. I just wasn't like any of them. Now I wonder today, some 20 years later, if there's any fourth grader who actually knows that the churches of Christ are different, are unique. Have we blended so much with the world? Have we failed to share our message, the message of the New Testament, to the point where people really don't know who we are and what we stand for? The book of 1 Peter is written to people who are suffering. And the Bible says there in verse 16 of chapter 4, If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. The very first full-time preaching job I had, I interviewed a man who had been a survivor of World War II. In fact, the very first battle he was in, he was wounded. He was taken as a prisoner of war and every day did not know whether he would see his family again. And I thought, since he was one of the few people I had encountered like this, who would actually talk about it, that I would interview him. So I set up a camera in his office, and I just asked him a series of questions. I have about an hour and a half worth of footage. It was very, very fascinating, at least to me. But one of the last things I asked him, how did you get through? And he pulled out from his top drawer a Bible. It was about the size of one of those pocket New Testaments, if you guys remember those. I don't know a lot of people carry those anymore, but very small. And he slid it across the desk and he said, open that up. And I began to flip through it. And I noticed there were two things about two-thirds of the way through that Bible. There was a big hole and there were pages and pages and pages of crimson red. He had been wearing that Bible in his coat pocket when he was shot in the back and taken as a prisoner of war. And as I was looking at it, obviously with interest in my eyes, he said, that Bible saved my life. And I told him, because he attended the congregation where I preached, and I said, yes, and the same Bible has been saving your life ever since. And he looked at me and he said... Yeah. Here's someone who had the courage to die, perhaps for a different reason than we're talking about this evening. But that experience motivated him to have the courage to live. As sick as he was, as many problems as he and his wife had, I never knew them to miss a worship service that they could possibly attend. That's the kind of commitment that the Lord expects of everyone who wears His name. The question is tonight, are we that committed? Are we willing to live for our Lord? Do we have the courage to die?